As we begin tonight at verse 14 of Luke chapter 11, we're considering these things that happened to Jesus, or that happened to Jesus, that were these events that came. When I say happened to Jesus, it all sounds so passive. But Jesus really wasn't passive. He was very active, of course, in his life and in his ministry. But these events connected with Jesus in his general move towards Jerusalem. In the structure of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has already begun his trip towards Jerusalem for his final um, visit there during Passover, where he will be crucified and then three days later rise from the dead. But there's a lot that happens on his way to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick it up here, verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. Now, maybe we should just stop right there. You know, Luke just writes it almost so matter-of-factly. You know, and he was casting out a demon like you or I would tie our shoes. He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. There's a lot in there, if you'll let us just sort of unpack it for you. But I just thought I'd share with you a theory that I heard within the last week. And I offer it to you nothing more as a theory. Okay, they're full of disclaimers right there. But I just like to think about different things. And so here's just something to think about. The man was offering a suggestion as to why we see virtually no occurrence of demon possession in the Old Testament... But the ministry of Jesus, and occasionally in the book of Acts, it seems to be a lot of it. And the guy was just kind of wondering why. There may be a few situations in the Old Testament that kind of made you a little bit speak of demons, but, but really not the same way we find it in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And he was just sort of addressing the question, why? And this was his theory. I offer it to you nothing more as a theory, but just something sort of provocative to think about. He was reflecting on the very true idea that there's nothing original with Satan. Satan is a copycat. He's never come up with one original idea. All he can do is take what God has done and pervert it and twist it in some way. And he suggested that there was actually an outbreak of demonic possession when Satan saw what happened when deity indwelt humanity in the incarnation of Jesus. And his idea was, the man suggesting this theory, that Satan said, I can imitate that in my own perverted, twisted way. And that's what these incidents of demonic possession were. Well, I I don't want to say yes or no to that. It's just sort of interesting to think about. But it's obvious that Jesus dealt with many demon-possessed people. Now, what was significant about this case? Look again at verse 14. He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. You and I say, mute, so what? Who cares? Well, no, this was actually a very big deal. You should know that in the days of Jesus, there were Jewish exorcists. Now, for all I know, there may have been pagan exorcists as well. It's just, I really don't know about those. But there were definitely Jewish exorcists who sought to do their work of delivering people who were demon-possessed, and they usually relied on superstitious formulas and approaches and ideas, you know, ceremonies and things like that. Well, in the Jewish thinking of exorcism, the key to casting out a demon was to know the demon's name. And so what you wanted to do first was get the demon to tell you its name 
so that you would have some kind of power or authority over the demon so that you could, you know, use that name to cast the demon out. I'm not saying it was effective or ineffective. I'm just telling you that that's what they thought. Well, do you see how in the Jewish thinking, a demon that caused somebody to be mute was impossible to cast out? Because you could never get the demon to tell you its name. Because the effect of the demon upon the fusion was to push the mute button upon them. You know what that is from your remote control. And they couldn't say anything. So if we were from Luke's own day, we would go, ooh, casting demon out of a mute. God, this is amazing. He was casting out a demon and it was mute, continuing on. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said... He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Now, this instance of delivering a man who was made mute by a demon was so mind-blowing to people. It says right there in the text that they marveled in verse 14. That's why they were so amazed. Because this was thought to be a particularly impossible kind of demon to cast out. But please notice this. The response of some people was to marvel. The response of some other people was to look at Jesus and say, yes, he casts out demons, but he does it by the power of Satan himself. You've got to admit, that's a pretty vicious accusation, isn't it? And it reflects something of such profound spiritual blindness on, part, on the part of those who made the accusation. Because to look at a beautiful work of God performed by the very Son of God and to say, that's the devil. That points to an insensitivity and a hardness of heart that's really remarkable to contemplate. So in any way, this is what their accusation is. He does it by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. By the way, Beelzebub is just sort of a weird name. It's a weird name to analyze Most people think it means something like Lord of the Flies. And it was just used as sort of this idea of Satan being some wretched, you know, deity upon a dung heap or something like that. And there's, it's just sort of a gross name used, but it's just sort of weird as well. Now notice this, some people marveled, some people said to Jesus, "Of, of remarkable, you're in league with the devil, you're in a partnership with the devil. And then other people said, look at it at the end of there, of verse uh, 16, it says that some were testing him and they sought a sign from heaven. Now, this was also a pretty wretched response. To look back at an amazing work of God and say something like this, yeah, that's pretty good. What else do you got up your sleeve? Now, man, that's really, that's really wicked to think that way. So Jesus is going to answer him, starting here at verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts. Now, that gives me pause right there. Knowing their thoughts. Now, I know what you just thought. I'm going to know your thoughts. Well, maybe, maybe not. Some of you might have just thought, well, of course he knew their thoughts. He was God. God knows all my thoughts, so Jesus knew their thoughts. Big deal. No. We would insist that as an aspect of his incarnation, Jesus gave up those privileges. They were within his grasp. He could have taken divine knowledge and divine prerogative, but he said, no, as part of my incarnation, I'm going to let go of that, and I'm going to live my life as a man who relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. But did you know that specifically, 
In the book of 1 Corinthians, one of the spiritual gifts it described is something called the word of knowledge, where God may give somebody supernatural knowledge in a particular situation. And I think that this was Jesus not functioning as God, so to speak. I mean, everything he did, he did as God, but not laying access to that divine prerogative. Instead, he's operating here as a spirit-filled man, knowing their thoughts. But he, or he might have just been really smart and could read their faces. I don't really know. Verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom is divided against itself. It will be brought to desolation. And a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Well, Jesus said this with full knowledge of what they were thinking, of where their minds were going. And he laid out a principle that's very insightful. Verse 17, he says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. See, Jesus has answered very logically. Okay, guys, let's just say that I am an agent of Satan. Let's just say that. I am in partnership with Satan then why am I beating back Satan's kingdom by casting demons out of mute people? It doesn't make any sense. If I am in partnership with Satan, I am working against Satan, and that means Satan's kingdom is in worse trouble than we thought. By the way, Charles Spurgeon said something very insightful here. Let me read it to you and see if you can grab onto his Victorian English. Satan may be wicked, he says in effect, but he is not a fool. Whatever fault the devils have, they are not at strife with each other. That fault is reserved for the servants of a better master. Do you get what he's saying here? He's saying demons aren't dumb enough to fight against each other, but believers are. Uh, That's a clever insight from, from Spurgeon there. So do you get the idea? It doesn't make any sense. There's no logic to your reply here. Of course, Satan isn't fighting against himself. But then he says something else in verse 19. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, Jesus observed, you Jewish leaders yourself, you have your own exorcists. Do, do you accuse them of being in league with Satan as well? And, and I wonder if Jesus said this almost, and this is just speculation, if Jesus said this almost in a little bit of a mocking way, in other words, maybe the Jewish exorcists did not really have success. And that's what they were jealous about. This wouldn't be the first situation where there was really jealousy in ministry based on success. Well, it just should never be like that. Verse 20. Ah, now Jesus really replies. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Oh, this is powerful. Starting at verse 20, Jesus says very plainly, If I cast out demons with the finger of God, then, ladies and gentlemen, the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
You see, Jesus is pointing back to the obvious truth that Satan isn't fighting against himself. That demons aren't casting out other demons. No, that's not how it's working at all. Instead, Jesus says, you guys know very well that what I'm doing is a demonstration of the power of God's own hand. This is the finger of God at work. And this means that the kingdom of God is manifest in your very presence. It's something like this. Jesus said, I'm not under Satan. I'm not in partnership with him. Instead, what I'm doing right now is I'm proving to you that I am stronger than he. You know, Jesus didn't suggest even the slightest kind of doubt when he said in verse 20, if I cast out demons with the finger of God. Don't think, well, maybe I do, maybe I don't. No, that's not the idea. A better translation of the ancient Greek would be something like this. Since I cast out demons with the finger of God. So there's no suggestion of doubt there. Jesus is telling them how he did his work. And then he paints this picture. He paints this picture of Jesus, excuse me, of Satan being an armed man in a palace, secluding himself from attack. But then what happens? Something beautiful happens. Did you notice it there in verse 21? But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him. In the picture that Jesus used, Satan is the strong man who guards what belongs to him. And Jesus' ministry, both in the sense of the miracle that just happened, the casting the demon out of the mute man, and in the broader sense... Jesus had come to despoil Satan's kingdom. It's almost as like Jesus came in and he looked at the devil and all of his terrible reign and power and he said, I'm coming after you. Yes, you're strong. Yes, you have your own fortified palace, but it's nothing to me. And Jesus came in there and he came and he overcame the strong man. I just want you to take a look at something right there in verse 22. That phrase that says this, But when a stronger than he comes. I just want you to think, I want you to turn it over in your mind for a minute. I want you to be happy about this thought. Jesus is stronger than Satan. Isn't that wonderful? Because I know there's some of you, you're really discouraged at the work you see the devil do around you. Now I know we're speaking in shorthand. Honestly speaking, the the Satan himself, Lucifer, that fallen one, he probably is so busy that he doesn't pay attention to our personal lives. But, but he's at the head of an organizational chart. And somewhere down the flow chart, there's demons who hassle you and I. And so we can refer to it in shorthand of Satan doing this or Satan doing that, even though it's his representatives, his emissaries. And you get discouraged because you see their strength. You see their tenacity. You see their power. And sometimes we just need to be reminded all over again, Jesus is stronger. You don't even hold a candle to Satan. In other words, Jesus doesn't even, uh, he's, he's like the sun compared to a little candle, Satan being the little candle. So please get this in your mind. You know, sometimes there's a little game I like to play with people to kind of emphasize this. You say, okay, uh, let, let's play the opposite game right here. What's the opposite of light? Dark. What's the opposite of hot? Cold. What's the opposite of night? Day. What's the opposite of God? No, there is none. You try to sucker people into saying Satan. Of course, the Sharpies here in the crowd, they're not getting on that. But do you see how easily we think that somehow Satan is the opposite of God? Ladies and gentlemen, he's not. He's an inferior created being. 
Satan is strong, no doubt. Jesus calls him the strong man. I'm not trying to deny that Satan has strength. I'm just saying that the power of Jesus is greater, and we need to have just more of that bold confidence in the power of Jesus. And I love how Jesus sort of spins this out, starting at verse 22, how he describes how Jesus comes and confronts Satan. Look, first, verse 22 says, he comes upon him. It's as if Jesus engages Satan in battle on the ground of what seems to belong to Satan. In other words, Jesus looked at that poor demon-possessed man made mute by that terrible demon. And Jesus said, no, that's not right. I come upon this situation and it's not right. It's not right that that demon torments that poor man. And so that's the first thing. He comes upon him. But then notice it in verse 22. He says, and overcomes him. Jesus simply defeated the strong man. And he showed everybody, I'm stronger than he is. Jesus made it clear that he was the stronger man who was not captive under Satan. His message was this. I'm not under Satan's power. I'm proving that I'm stronger than he is because I'm casting him out of those whom he has possessed. But then notice it in verse 22. I love this one. He takes from him all his armor in which he trusted. Jesus not only defeated Satan on our behalf, he also disarmed him. Can I read you one of my favorite verses from the book of Colossians chapter 2? Listen to it. Verse 15 says this. That Jesus, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, meaning the cross. That tells us that at the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan. Whatever weapons he might have had against you, those weapons are stripped from him. And yes, he still has powerful things at his disposal, most notably deception and fear and lies to spread among you. But he's been stripped of so many of his weapons against you. But then I love this too. Verse 22, the fat last step, he says, and he divides his spoils. I love this one. Because sometimes when I look at the victories that Satan seems to win, I think, no, Satan, you have too much spoil from the battle. There's too many lives. There's too many souls. There's too many people. There's too many possessions. There's too many institutions that belong to you. And I just want to have my confidence in Jesus that Jesus is going to overcome Satan and spoil him of all that he has. Those things that you seem to possess now, Satan, they don't actually belong to you. And Jesus Christ is going to take that from you and he's going to divide that spoil from you. Listen, here's the great message. There is nothing in our life that must stay under Satan's dominion. Nothing. Jesus, the strong man, has come into your life. And so you shouldn't give Satan even the slightest foothold, the slightest opportunity to exercise any strength over you whatsoever. Now, this very bold contrast between who Jesus is and who Satan is. By the way, maybe I should just... You know, I just realized that when I talk about Satan like this in this very biblical way, There may be people who say, oh, come on. You know, little guy in red tights and a pitchfork running around. Haven't we gotten all over this sort of weird personification of evil? You know, doesn't this belong to some strange superstitious age? All I can say 
is I believe what the Bible says about this being that we call Satan. That he is a fallen angel of high rank and that he has organized other fallen angels in a determined effort to thwart whatever he can of the plan of God and to ruin as many people as he can. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's so stupid. How could Satan ever think that he could thwart God's plan? Isn't he a fool? Yes, he is a fool. I'll tell you my own theory. I mean, I can't prove it, but I think it's pretty good, if I can say so. But my own theory is that Satan, like most of the greatest liars, Satan is self-deceived. You know, don't the greatest liars have a way of lying to themselves and making themselves believe it? And I believe that Satan believes the biggest lie towards himself, that he really believes, I got a shot at this. I can run it off the rails. I can defeat God's plan. When you and I, we've read the Bible, we know there's not a, isn't that funny to say there's not a prayer for Satan? That's a funny way to talk, isn't it? But you know what I mean. No, no, no. Instead, his absolute end is ruin. But I don't know if he believes that. Because he's a liar, and he's a liar to the core. Well, in light of this great contrast between Jesus and Satan, not that they're equals, but they do contrast, look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Would you look at that with me? That's why Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus is stronger than Satan then each person is confronted with a decision. Who are you going to partner with? Are you going to be with Jesus or will you be against Jesus? Are you going to work with Jesus' work or are you going to work against his work? There is in this great sense that to be undecided is to be decided. I know you're thinking, well, look, I just don't want even part of this battle. I'll stay on the sidelines. I won't get involved in this. It's not my mess. no. If you're not for Jesus, you're against him. That's a frightening thing to think about. I want you to think, just for a moment, I almost don't want you to think about it too deeply because you'll get too depressed. Think about how many unwitting slaves Satan has. That man, that woman who thinks, man, I'm living my own life. I don't answer anybody. Woo, I'm free. Slave of Satan. They're dancing to the devil's tune. And if only they understood how dominated they are by the powers of darkness, their skin would crawl if they could see it for a moment, and they'd run for refuge in Jesus Christ. But isn't that what Satan wants to do, is to keep them blind, to keep them seduced, to keep them drugged up, either literally or figuratively? And not for a moment to think about their eternal soul And to think seriously about the fact that Jesus Christ looks him in the eye and says, hey, either you're for me or you're against me. If you're not working for me, you're not working with me at all. You are, in fact, working against me. So listen, there's no doubt about it. Satan's the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger one. And there are two strong forces at work. Now, one stronger, no doubt about it. Listen, you're going to line up with one or the other. Now, in verse 24, Jesus kind of goes off on a tangent a little bit, giving us sort of something very interesting about demon possession. This is, the, if I could say this, I, it's, 
I think you'll catch my heart when I say this. This is the kind of thing we wish Jesus talked more about because it's really interesting. And he just kind of throws out some tidbits to us about demon possession that, well, anyway, you'll see. Verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits who are more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Wow. Jesus says, what happens when a person is freed from demonic domination? It's the picture of a person who's delivered from a demon, yet they are not yet filled with Jesus. It's sort of a picture of a person who wants to remain neutral. Isn't that correct? Okay, no, I don't want Satan to fill me, ah, but I want Jesus to fill me either. I'll just be somewhere in the middle. And what does Jesus say? You can't remain in the middle. You're in this middle ground. You're saying, no, I don't want Satan to dominate my life. No, but I want Jesus to dominate my life either. What does Jesus say will be the end of that person? Jesus says that that demon that went out of him will come back and see that his house is swept up and clean and unoccupied, so to speak. And he'll take advantage of it and leave that man in worse condition than before. Verse 26 says, the last state of that man is worse than the first. Do you realize that a person can actually be freed from demonic domination and then end up in a worse place eventually? What's the worst place? The worst place is having those demons in some form or another come back even stronger because you didn't fill your life with Jesus Christ. You can say that the heart of man has a vacuum-like nature to it. It has to be filled. And if we empty our heart from evil without filling it with Jesus and His good, evil will rush in again to fill it, and sometimes worse evil than ever before. And this is what I want you to understand. Jesus was answering those who were accusing Him of working by the power of Satan. And He says, listen, I haven't come just to fight against the powers of evil, but no, I've come to fill your life, to fill your heart to fill this empty house with myself. And I wonder, it's just wondering here, but I wonder if Jesus didn't say those words right to the man that he had just filled, or excuse me, freed from demonic possession. Wouldn't it make sense for Jesus to be speaking to that man? Sir, I've just delivered you from a terrible demonic domination. Now, now, you need to receive me into your heart. You need to put your trust in me. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in worse condition than before. Verse 27. We sort of transition to something else here now. Verse 27. And it happened, as he spoke of these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. And he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, you might think this is really weird. i got to say, I've never actually had that happen while I'm preaching a message. (laughs) Somebody stand up and cry out, Blessed is the womb that bore you. I mean, that. well, great. Okay, I love my mom too. (laughs) It was a seemingly spontaneous cry from a certain woman. That's how she's described in the text. 
what this woman in the crowd wanted to do was she wanted to honor Jesus and honor his family. I don't have any doubt that she only had good intention. Jesus, I want to honor you. And what better way to honor Jesus than to pay a compliment to his mother? Because every good son loves it. You know, if the mother is blessed, if the mother... So she says something like this, Jesus, you're so wonderful that your mother must be a very blessed woman. Isn't your mother very proud of you and what you've become and all the rest of it? Then Jesus says something in reply in verse 28. That's really shocking. I mean, wouldn't you expect, I I mean, if somebody did say such a thing, I'd probably say, oh, shucks, thank you. You know, I love my mom too, that kind of thing. No, Jesus says something that's, that's almost a rebuke. It almost feels like that to the lady. He says, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, nobody should think for a moment that Jesus was dishonoring his mother. No, 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 he wasn't dishonoring her, but he pointed out the greater and more important connection between himself and those who hear the word of God and keep it than even more than his own family. This is a more blessed and important relationship to God than even being related by blood to Jesus. You got to say, don't you think that that's actually shocking? Until the Messiah was born, every Jewish woman grew up with this wondering expectation, might I be the one to bear the Messiah? They knew that one woman in all of history would be given this supreme privilege to bear the Messiah. And you can just imagine that when Gabriel made that announcement to Mary, that there could be no greater blessing bestowed upon any individual woman than to have that unique privilege. And so you think about this amazing bond between Jesus and his mother. Just remarkable. This most blessed of all men, this most blessed of all women. There they are with this amazing bond. And Jesus looks at you in the eye and he says, if you hear my word and keep it, you have an even closer, more precious bond than even my own family. Don't you want some of that for your own life? Don't you want that closeness with Jesus? I think he holds it out to those who hear and keep his word. It just makes me say, oh, Lord, I want to be that man. I want to be that man who hears your word and keeps it. Okay, going on now. Verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this isn't a great way to, I I don't think I've ever started a sermon this way. This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. 
Jesus began this little sermon with a hand grenade. Looking out at the crowd, the thick crowd. He was very popular. People wanted a piece of him. A thick crowd gathered around and he goes, you're an evil generation. This is an evil generation. Now, why? Look at it right there in verse 29. Because it seeks a sign. You see, they heard God's word. They saw Jesus in action. But again, they had a little bit more of that attitude of the folded arms and saying, yeah, pretty good. What else are you going to show us, Mr. Messiah? And Jesus rebuked that. He called that an evil attitude. According to the biblical commentator William Barclay, about 15 years after Jesus' time on earth, a man named Thudius arose among the Jews and he claimed to be the Messiah. He persuaded the people to follow him with the promise that he would part the Jordan River in two. So what did he do? He got a great big crowd of people. He went to the Jordan River and he went, whammo, and nothing happened. He failed. It was a great big flop. Well, the Romans dealt very severely with this man, but at least Thutius knew what kind of sign the people wanted to see. They wanted a sign that would have some flash, some pizzazz, something going for it. And what did Jesus do? Jesus healed sick people and delivered demon-possessed people And then did some other miracles. And they would think, yeah, this is great and all, but it doesn't have the kind of flash and pizzazz we're really looking for, Jesus. Can't you do something more spectacular? And Jesus said, no, let me tell you what's more important than signs, hearing and keeping the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, I rejoice when God does great works. And I want to see God do more and more great works. I mean, don't, don't, doesn't your heart just get excited when you see God do flat-out miraculous things? When someone who is sick is healed. When someone who is bound up in addiction is just instantly delivered. When, when sometimes that great miracle of somebody just growing in grace day by day happens. We just rejoice to see God's great works. Nevertheless, our real relationship with God must be tethered tight to His Word hearing it and keeping it, not in seeking after signs. I think it's ironic that Jesus had given many remarkable signs. Isn't it funny? We read the Gospels and go, wow, look at all the signs. Jesus' old contemporaries oftentimes said, well, ho-hum. And that's why Jesus said, no, you have to give attention to the Word of God. They wanted to see signs that would lead to the military resistance and to the political independence of the people of Jesus from the occupying Romans. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to condemn your seeking after a sign, especially when countless signs have happened in front of you. Honestly, now, how many more transformed lives do you need to see? How many more people that have genuinely been healed do you have to hear about? How many people do you have to hear that have just had miraculous works of God? Haven't you seen enough? Then why don't you just come and believe his word, hear it and keep it? I got to say, part of me gets real excited about this. All right, because I was thinking about this. I was studying this week. I was thinking and I was picturing your faces speaking to you on a Wednesday night 
And I was picturing looking out on all of your faces and saying, they're already doing half of it right now. They're already hearing it. You're already that connected to Jesus. Because honestly, there's a lot of things you could be doing else on a Wednesday night. I don't even want to tell you all the other things you could be doing, but you can think of them. (laughs) But here you are, at least for tonight, you said, Lord, I want to come here and hear his word. Now, that's half of it. What's the other half? Keep it. All right, we'll do that as well. But isn't that beautiful that Jesus opens up this greater path than signs, this greater path than even a human relationship? But notice what he says here, verse 29. He says, no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. You see, Jesus told us that Jonah, in verse 30, he says, became a sign and that Jesus would be a similar sign to his generation. How was Jonah a sign? Check it out. What did Jonah do on the ship? The whole ship was under the wrath of God. What did Jonah do? He said, make me the guilty one. Throw me into God's wrath and I'll save everybody on board. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Did not Jesus plunge himself into the wrath of God for us? And he stayed under three days and three nights and then came out to new life. Don't you see that Jonah there was preaching about Jesus with his life, even if he didn't even know it? And this is the sign that Jesus promised. Jesus is that sign both to his generation and to ours. Jesus himself is the sign. You want a sign? Look at the sign of Jonah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's your sign right there, the person and work of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, verse 31, the the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. When the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, she saw all the great works that God had done for Solomon, all the way that he had exalted Jerusalem as a glorious city. And then when she saw all the awesomeness of it, she praised the God of Israel. You know what she didn't say? She didn't fold her arms and sniff at Solomon and say, yeah, show me a little more and then I'll believe. She said, no, I see it. It's right in front of my eyes. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And what's the point of it? Jesus is saying, listen, that queen of the south, that queen of Sheba, those men of Nineveh, they're going to sit in judgment of those who reject Jesus Christ. Because they trusted in God with far less evidence than these people that Jesus spoke to had. Now I want to conclude with just one sort of thing here. Two radical statements that Jesus made. Look at it in verse 31. This is the one that really kind of blows my mind. The first thing he says is, a greater than Solomon is here. Can you appreciate the audacity of that? Solomon was Israel's richest and wisest and in some ways most glorious king. Actually, David was their best king. But, you know, in some ways, Solomon had some style and pizzazz, you know, that David didn't have. You have Solomon, glorious among all the kings of Israel. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, one greater than Solomon is here. I mean, I can almost hear the jaws dropping. What? You claim you're greater than Solomon? 
Who do you think you are? I'll tell you who he thinks he is. He's the son of God from heaven. And even as great as Solomon was, he pales nothing to the glory and the greatness of God-made man, Jesus of Nazareth. And then look at it here in verse 32. Jesus piles it on again. He says, indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. What do you mean, Jonah, a great prophet? He turned a whole city to repentance just by his preaching. And Jesus said, yep, I'm greater than Jonah. I love the audaciousness of Jesus. He just walks into our life, looks us in the eye, and he says, listen, I'm greater than anything you've ever sought after before. You deserve my word. Excuse me. I deserve your worship. I deserve your submission. And what possibly could you think of in your life that is greater than Jesus? Nothing, nothing at all. And that's just, we'll leave ourselves with that thought. We'll warm our minds up for the next time when we get into it next Wednesday night. But friends, isn't that glorious? The surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than any demon that inhabits hell. Jesus is greater than still. Father, I pray. I pray for anybody here tonight who's seduced by a life of low ambition and small things. Jesus, would you lift up their vision to see you and to see you in your greatness and get them excited, Lord, and truly living the greatest life possible a life trusting in and surrendered to the greatest of all, the one stronger than Satan, the one greater than Solomon, the one greater than Jonah. We receive it from you, Jesus. We ask that you'd cement that in our hearts. And tomorrow, when some little thing tries to seduce even a momentary allegiance away, give us the wisdom to surrender it immediately to your Lordship. We pray this in your name. Amen.